we're, we're in the midst of our 40 days of prayer. And last week we began our service by reciting the Lord's Prayer together. I'd like to do that again today, but I'd like to, in honor of the scriptures that we're going to be looking at, let's stand together as we recite the Lord's Prayer together. This is the NIV version. That's what we'll be using. So if you don't know it, this is what you need. If you have it memorized on your own, let's use this one so that we match as best as we can. But let's, let's recite this together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Go ahead and have a seat here this morning. As, as we transition, I, I do want to share... The email was sent out. I trust that most everyone knows, but if you do not, I want to make sure it is, it is understood. But our brother, Chris Harakal, passed away suddenly this past week. Um, the visitation will be this evening at Emblem Brenny Funeral Chapel from 5 o'clock to 8 o'clock. The services will be then tomorrow. Another visitation from 10 a.m. until 11, and the ser- service will also be at Emblem Brenny Funeral Chapel from 11 o'clock until noon or so. Uh, keep Elena and the family in your prayers as we navigate this and this grief, and many of you who knew Chris well. And in fact, we'll get to a point, I believe, in the service today through an illustration as we look at, at prayer and what it is that the Lord does that I just really feel like this illustration points to what the Lord was doing in Chris. And I'll highlight that as, as we get there. But this wasn't intended to be any kind of a memorial for Chris, yet what it is is an opportunity for the body of Christ to come together to, to invite the Holy Spirit to do something in us today. I want to understand prayer more. I want to connect with the Lord in prayer. Last week, we got into what prayer is and, and the way I look at it, and I don't have a perfect understanding of prayer. I emphasized that last week. There's a lot of aspects that are a mystery to me. There's so many things that I don't fully understand. Why in the world do I pray one thing and the Lord answers that and gives me what I ask for? And another time, it's like I'm just as earnest for it, and yet we don't see it happen. I don't have a good answer for it. However, what I do see in the realm of prayer, and this is really what the emphasis was last week, I'm convinced, and I have had such, no, no credit to myself whatsoever, but from the Holy Spirit in me, I've had such sweet times of prayer over these last couple of weeks because I've just taken some time and invited, Lord, I want my heart to be aligned with yours. And that's been the, the thrust of my prayers over these last couple of weeks. Lord, I just want my heart to be aligned with yours. And I feel like he's honoring that with his spirit. And that's my heart for every one of us as the body of Christ. Oh man, what would it be like if we could quiet ourselves and just invite the Holy Spirit, Lord, align my heart to be like your heart. I want to know you in that way. And I'm convinced that what we see is the Lord and his graciousness. He does exactly that. And when he aligns our heart with his, then we can start to be able to pray like we talked last week. Oh, Lord, thy kingdom come. Your will be done. Forget what I've got, because there's a lot of things that I want, right? I'd love to win the lottery. It's going to be hard because we don't buy lottery tickets, okay? However, there's there's a lot of things, you know, I, I want this, I want that. Oh, wouldn't this be fun? Wouldn't that be great? And yet in the midst of it, there's something much richer, and that's that relationship with the Lord. And we're going to see that here today. So we're we're looked at... We're going through in this 40 days of prayer, 
We're navigating through the Lord's Prayer. It's a larger alliance initiative. And today we're in verse 11. And specifically, before we get into the Lord's Prayer, we have some passages that Jesus lays out for us that really lead into well, and we didn't cover this last week, that lead into well the Lord's Prayer. So let's just back up a few verses. This will help kind of springboard us into it. But Jesus gives some instructions on prayer, and this is wonderful. So let's just walk through this slowly. So Jesus has given this instruction. This is part of that, the dynamic Sermon on the Mount that we find. And this is in chapter 6, starting at verse 5. And so Jesus has given the instruction. So when you pray, again, this is before the Lord's Prayer aspect. He's going to transition it really, really sweetly. But he says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Hypocrites, they were actors. So what Jesus is really saying to those he's preaching to, don't be like actors. Don't be pretenders when you pray. The hypocrites, they were, they were actors and they would go out on stage and they would wear basically these big masks to shield what they really looked like. And so people would look at them and was like, okay, that's, that's who they are, but that's not who they were. And so he says, don't, don't pray, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites because these people, they love to pray standing in the synagogues. What's interesting about the synagogues, that's the religious gathering. Every city would have had a synagogue and people would go into them to, to basically to worship. This isn't the temple. It's a church, really. They'd go into the synagogue. And so by the, what, what Jesus is saying, these people would go, they'd love to go into the synagogues, these religious places, and like to pray out loud and draw attention to themselves in the midst of all of this religious happenings. So people that are religious get to look at them and say, wow, you're so righteous. Oh, listen to you pray. You just kind of, you can keep going on and on. And it's to build their own acclaim. And so Jesus says, don't pray like that. And he goes on to say, and those who will pray on the street corners. People would go out in this culture. They would go out on the street corners and they would be praying out loud. Again, for that same reason. Because why the street corners? That's where the busyness was. That's where the most people were. And so people are going out on the street corners and they're praying out loud. So people draw, they're drawing people's attention saying, oh, wow, look at these people. They're so righteous. They're so holy. And, and, and Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't fall into the trap and make prayer something about you. And that's the pattern we're going to continue to see here this morning. He says, truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. What was it that they were seeking? Acclaim. They wanted people's attention. They wanted people's affirmations. And guess what? They got it. Their reward is in full. They got the approval of all those people around them that said, wow, you're righteous. Bingo, I nailed it. That's exactly what I was after, and that's exactly what they got. All right? And Jesus is saying, that's not about prayer. If that's your prayer, you're worshiping yourself. There's a question in our grow groups last week. Andrew, who's kind of facilitating, was one of our elders. He was facilitating it. And he asked us the question, is all prayer worship? Something to that effect. And right away, our answer was no, that's not true. And I got to thinking afterwards, well, maybe it is true, but the object of the worship maybe is something that's different. All right? So in other words, is all of our prayers worship to God? Absolutely not. Our all of our prayers worship, maybe because what we see here is, is a bunch of worship to myself. And that's just kind of a, a contrast that I thought of along this week as I was reflecting on it. But he says, you're going to receive your reward in full in that dynamic. He goes on to say, and Jesus says, but when you do pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Does this mean that corporate public prayer is bad? No. 
What Jesus is pointing to is the heart behind the prayer. Don't miss that. This is huge. As a follower of Christ, prayer has to be an integral part of my walk with him. It has to be. And if prayer isn't a part of your walk with him, I've got to challenge you to look at that in a very focused eye. This isn't any opportunity to guilt, but it's a reality of, as a follower of Christ, as a believer, I have to be in communication with my Father. Prayer is huge. It should come maybe somewhat naturally, but we'll get to it. We'll see how this develops. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door. Why is Jesus saying that? He's saying, because this is an intimate time, I want you to understand that this is not about you being showy. This is about you, an honest prayer, aligning your heart with the heart of God. And then I love the fact, we talked about this briefly last week, we see the word father. Remember, Christianity is the only faith, the only religion that uses the word father to attribute towards God. It's incredibly intimate. All of the other religions, none of them will do it. Even when you look at Islam, they would be appalled at the reality that you would call God Father. It's way too intimate. No, don't you dare. And yet this is Jesus, the Son of God, that actually displays that for us. It's a remarkable phrase. And so when you look at that, that's important to note. So close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, there's the word again, who sees what is done in secret will reward you. What's your reward? Are you going to get everything you asked for? Are you going to, are you going to win the lottery? No, that's not the point. What's the reward? You're going to have your heart aligned with His. If there's a goal for your prayers, let it be that your heart is aligned with the heart of God. He goes on and he says, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. So this is the, this is the contrast. So before what we we're looking at is a bunch of Israelites, priests, etc., religious leaders that would go out and pray aloud, drawing attention to themselves. But now he's talking about the pagans. The pagans would be similar to what we find in the Old Testament, where if you remember the story of Elijah, and he's on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. And 400 prophets of Baal, and they're calling out repeated prayers to Baal over and over and over again. They end up cutting themselves, trying to draw any kind of attention like Baal, will you hear us? And Baal seems to be deaf at the point, at that moment. And Elijah starts mocking them. And he says, maybe you guys should speak louder, cry out maybe harder. Maybe your God can't hear you. Maybe he's busy, which is actually literally, maybe he's on the toilet. You know, maybe he's locked in the bathroom and he can't hear you because he's busy. And it's just, it's astounding. And these people are just crying out louder and louder, hear us, hear us, hear us. And we have a God that hears us. And we don't need to cry out and babble and over. Oh, the next phrase that we're going to see exactly, it it points to why we don't need to be doing this kind of stuff. Because it says, don't be like them for your father knows what you need before you even ask it. God knows what you need. He probably knows it better than you do. He knows the desires of your heart. He knows your needs right now. And when we look at, at human needs, basically it kind of boils down to there's, I looked it up. There's all kinds of things. People need all kinds of things. People need Facebook. Google tells us that. But what we need really in the basics, it's, you know, it's the food, it's the water, it's the shelter. Some will add in the idea of security. I would add in love. I would add in sleep. Interestingly, and, and I know some of you may be experienced this too, uh, if you go like more than 36 hours without sleep, you actually will start hallucinating 
And it's really funny if you can be around someone like that. So, you know, if you have a young child, and just keep that child awake and don't let them fall asleep, don't let them fall asleep. That may be funny. Don't do that. That's mean and sadistic. That's called a father exasperating his children. Also bad in the scriptures. But in, in some of these cases, so there's, there's stories, and I looked some of these up. I'd heard some of them, and I looked some of them up, but it's fascinating. So they have what's called an ultra-marathon runner. They're already sick in the head from beginning because they run the 26 miles for a marathon, and then they go another 75 miles. It's like, I'm not done yet. Let's do four times that. Anyway, and then they do it. When they do it, they do it nonstop, and they'll run it through the, in the trails, and they run it at night. And I kid you not, I read a bunch of these stories of people who are hallucinating while they're running. You know, so they're running through the woods and they're seeing things. One guy got, I read about it, he got so upset that all of these houses, this is in the woods, all of these houses and people are out there grilling. You know, it's just like, there's no one here. You know, so they have different crew members that are helping the guy that's like, Jimmy, you're, that's not real right now. Okay. But it's fascinating. We need sleep. And, and theoretically, this is in theory, if you don't get sleep, you will die. It's very difficult to prove because your body shuts down and will actually fall asleep before you get to that point. But they say, really, so bottom line is, God knows what you need. And even beyond those physical needs, and he knows those physical needs, he knows what you need in your soul. How many times do we experience this in our lives like, oh my goodness, I just need peace. Lord, I am so stressed. I need you to comfort me. I need to be with you. I need to be in the midst of you, the Lord knows what you need, and he knows it better than you do, and he knows it even before you do. So don't be like them and just go babbling, babbling. The Lord knows what you need before you even ask him. And so then right following that, we get into the Lord's Prayer, and this is how he transitions then. And he gives some instruction. This is how you should pray. This is not a formula. We talked about that last time, remember? It's not a, hey, once you do this, and then you go to this, and this, and this. Once you do all those things in the right order for the proper amount of time, then you'll get what you want. That's not prayer, and that's not what Jesus is pointing to. Notice the heart behind it. This, then, is how you should pray. Oh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And this is the verse we hit last week. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's not about me. This is about whatever it is that you have. I want my heart to be aligned with your heart. I want it to be done here on earth and in me, just as it is in heaven. And then we get to today's verse. We'll look at that in a moment. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so we look at this verse today. Give us today our daily bread. It's a prayer of petition. It's asking God, I want you to give me that which I need. You know, James gives us a picture of prayer in the New Testament as well. A couple of them, some in, in chapter 4 and chapter, chapter 5. We're going to look at specifically chapter 4. And what's interesting about this is it's, it's really a picture of prayer, but it's also a picture of conflict that's going on within the church. And I think that well, I share it because I believe that this is pointing to, when we look at what prayer is and aligning my heart with the heart of God, this is an example of a misaligned heart of a believer. Okay, so James is pointing out, he's asking them, so what's causing these fights and quarrels among you? Why are you fighting amongst yourselves? He said, and then he goes and he answers the same question. He says, don't they come from the desires that battle within you? In other words, you have all of these wants in your life, and when you don't get what you want, you're throwing temper tantrums. And we may think that that doesn't follow us. It doesn't fit me. I'm not throwing a temper tantrum. Sure you are. We all do. Every one of us. I'm probably the most guilty. Okay? 
When we don't get what we want, we get frustrated and we start throwing our little pity party, we start throwing our temper tantrum, whatever you want to call it. But it's a reality. It's like, Lord, I didn't get what I wanted. And it's not like he's saying, well, I don't care. It's he's saying, I want you to understand a bigger picture. I want your heart to be aligned with my heart. And so James is pointing this reality out because now watch what happens. He says, you desire what you don't have. Yeah, I get that, all right? I desire to be financially secure so I don't have to worry about all this stuff, all right? If I had that, Lord, help me to be financially secure, then maybe I can be content, right? That's not what we find in the Scriptures. He says, you desire what you do not have, so you kill. So in other words, I don't have what I want, they have what I want, so I'm going to go in literal, okay, uh, very extreme, but take their life for them. But we get a little less extreme here. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. How many of our quarrels and our fights are about us not getting what, I, what we want? I think you should act in a certain way. Well, you didn't act in that way. Well, guess what? Let's have at it. And that's what happens. He says, you do not have, and this is the context of that, because we look at this verse and say, well, all I have to do is ask God, and he's going to give it to me. Not quite, but there's a reality in here. You do not have because you do not ask. And some versions will say, you have not because you seek not, or you have not because you ask not. In other words, ask God what you want, and he'll give it to you. That's what some of the mindset is. That's not exactly accurate, but there's a reality. If I ask God to align my heart with his, and then I approach prayer, Lord, help me to see what it is that I need. Will you provide that for me? There's a huge change, huge difference. So last week was kind of about this idea of what prayer is. Today, we're going to be stepping in a little bit more so as far as how do we pray. And I, I bristle a little bit at that phrase because I don't like how-to type, formula type things. And so we're not going to be formula, but we're going to look at some of the principles that really affect of how it is that we're going to pray. James 4 continues on, when you do ask, you do not receive. This is to the, the people in that church at the time. This is why you're not receiving, because you ask with the wrong motives. In other words, your heart is not aligned with the heart of God, that you spend your heart with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. In other words, Lord, help me to win the lottery so I can be financially secure. I don't have to worry. As opposed to, Lord, align my heart with yours. Help me to see things the way you do so that I can be secure and at peace. Huge difference. All right, so give us today our daily bread. This comes from, and this points back to Old Testament. This is wonderful. I love this. So back in Exodus 16, Moses came, comes into the scene. We know, many of us know the story. So with Moses comes into the scene, God says to Moses through the burning bush, I've heard the wails of my people. I'm going to let or have you be the one that's going to draw my people out of Egypt and we're going to set them free. Long story. So basically Moses goes in. There's the 10 plagues. He leads them out. Well, what happens is they cross over the Red Sea and they find out now that they've left Egypt, the Red Sea swallowed up Egypt's army. And so they're virtually free, and they're at the other side of the Red Sea, and now it's a big now what moment. They're still following God with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And yet what they find is like, my stomach is starting to rumble. I'm starting to feel pretty thirsty. There's a couple of incidences early on there where they don't have water. There's bitter water, and Moses, God provides and says, tells Moses, take your staff, touch the water, and it's going to make it sweet. He does that. So God has already provided for them somewhat. And then what we find is in Exodus 16, while they're in the desert, the whole community, all of these hundreds of thousands of Israelites start complaining to Moses and Aaron, their leaders, who are God's spokespersons. So basically when they speak against Moses, they're also speaking directly against God. Just so you understand that, well, you just said that to Moses. That's not quite so bad. It is just as bad. 
in this context. It really is. So the Israelites said to them, Oh, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. That is a flat out, I don't know if you call it a lie, a deception. That never happened. Did they eat in Egypt? Yes. But were they sitting around getting themselves fat on whatever they wanted? Absolutely not. They may have forgotten the fact that that was slave labor that they were doing, and it was oppression when Pharaoh said, you got to make this much, this much, this much, and continue to withdraw all of their resources. It was hard, nasty life. It, this wasn't some kind of luxury, but now suddenly they're looking back, and it's like, oh, man, remember what we used to eat in Egypt? That was so good, because now we have nothing. And that whole picture of appreciation and thankfulness is gone. There we sat around pots of meats and ate all the food we wanted, but you've brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And the Lord said to Moses, okay, he, he, he hears them. It wasn't this repeated babble, babble, babble until he finally heard them, but he, he hears them. He says, I'm gonna rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day, daily bread. All right, so when Jesus is talking about this idea of daily bread, these Israelites would have known exactly what he's referring to. God provided for them every day. Here's the picture. And they would go out and they would gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. When the Israelites saw it, so the, every morning they'd go out in this bread that's almost like a frost that was out on the ground, and they would go and collect it. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is this? For they did not know what it was. I've never seen anything like this. And Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. However, so they were given some instructions. They were supposed to go out once a day. In the morning, they would collect one omer, one basically jarful for their individual purpose for that day, and that's what they had. They would not get two jars, because when they get two jars, what would happen is, and this is what happened, they, they started to keep it. Oh man, what if God doesn't provide for us tomorrow? We have the food today. I don't want to be hungry. So what if he doesn't provide for us tomorrow? So in other words, they, they take their heart and they kind of separate it away from God because, okay, God's given us food today, but he might not do it again. And it's all on them and what they desire and what they want. So they, they started collecting more than what they were supposed to and trying to keep it for the next day. You know what happened? Just what we see here. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses and those instructions. They kept part of it until morning but it was full of maggots and it began to smell. So whatever this bread from heaven was for would last only the day. And the next day then, it would be nasty and rotting away. Except for the day before the Sabbath. Then they would collect two and miraculously, that would keep and they wouldn't have to go and collect it on the Sunday, on the Sabbath. I mean, it's amazing how God was providing for this people, not only for the food that they needed, but also for the rest. It's astounding. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to the land. That was a, I remember, and I wrote this in the email, so we were in a Mexico mission strip. We had eggs and beans every meal. So we, got, we ate twice a day for 10 days, Eggs and beans, eggs and beans, eggs and beans. Some days it was different. It was beans and eggs, beans and eggs, beans and eggs. I'll tell you this. I, I like eggs and I like beans. But by the end, I was gagging them. 
I mean, I could not handle it any longer. And that's 10 days, not 40 years. So did the Israelites get tired of this manna from heaven? Absolutely. But was it sustaining? Absolutely. Did God continue to provide for them? Yes. I got to be honest. Can I see why they grumbled? Yep. But as I'm in Mexico and I'm grumbling about the food, I'm just as guilty. And you know what the reality of it is? I've lost my appreciation I've lost my thankfulness. I've lost my humility. Those are key right there into what the prayer life that God wants us to be involved in. And we'll look at that here in just a moment. So the Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they reached the border of Canaan. And I, I back up at this because I want you to, to see what it is that God was doing. So this is in verse 8, and he says, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread that you want in the morning. And we do see that meat in Numbers 11. It's also recorded in Exodus 16. There's some different uh, theologies as to how those integrate. We're not going to get into that part of it here today. But in Numbers 11, we get this account. So they're eating the manna, and likely and rightly so, they're complaining about the manna. It's like, I'm sick of the bread. All right, I want some meat. This is wonderful. So the rabble, that's those, the rabble rousers, okay, with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing, said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate at no cost. No cost? You were in slave labor for 400 years. Talk about no cost? That's a huge cost, okay? You're forgetting the price that you were paying in Egypt. Anyway, also, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Oh, we had it so good. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. That's it. And God says, tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. God's going to provide them meat. You ask, you shall receive. However, there's a little twist to it. The Lord heard when you wailed, if only we had meat to eat, we, will be, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat. I love this one. You will not eat meat for just one day or for two days or for five days or for 10 or for 20 days. You will eat meat for a whole month until it comes out your nostrils and you loathe it. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? In other words, what God is saying is, you want meat, I'll give you meat. But you've lost the thankfulness. You've lost the perspective. You've lost the picture. I want your heart to be aligned with mine. And when you can have your heart aligned with mine, everything changes. I like this. Moses actually complained a little bit to God and says, okay, wait a minute. You just promised hundreds of thousands of people meat to eat for a month, okay? Where am I going to get it? So really Moses' question is, and God's answer is, is my arm too short? Can I not do this? Can I not create this? Now you will see whether or not what I say will come true for you. Now you can trust him. You may not know the answers. You may not know what's coming, but you can trust God that he's going to provide for you as he has promised to. I don't know always what that will look like. The Israelites didn't always know what that would look like, but it's true and it's good. John 14. Okay, so we're going to transition a little bit. We're going to look at some of Jesus' words, Jesus' prayer, and then we're going to wrap it up here. I have a little illustration. We'll be done. So Jesus says, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have. So all of these long-arm things that God did, Jesus is basically saying, I am one and the same as he is, and I have the power to do all that as well. So everything that you've seen me do, all these miracles, you watch me walk on water, you watch me calm the storm, you watch me raise the dead, all of these things is what he's getting at that I've been doing, and they 
will even do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do... Again, we misunderstand this. I think this doesn't mean that you're going to win the lottery just by simply asking Jesus to win the lottery. You're going to align your heart with God first and he's going to show you what it is that he's got for you. And I will do whatever you ask in my name. Oh, Lord, my, my little brother took the last muffin. I really would like a muffin. Would you create a new muffin for me? That doesn't work that way. Okay, now could. God could. <laughs> but I'll do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. What does it mean to ask for something in God's name? Have your heart aligned with his heart? Oh, Lord, align my heart with yours so I know how to ask things in your name. So we get two keys, two principles when it comes to our prayers. Last week was all about what is prayer. Today is how do we pray? I, f- I find there's two principles, two keys. One, first is thankfulness. We didn't see it with the Israelites. Look at Paul's words as he writes to Timothy. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he has considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. What does Paul remember? He remembers what it was really like in Egypt. The Israelites didn't. Do you see the difference? As we pray, you have to have an understanding of what Jesus has done for you, a thankfulness. It's just, it's incredible. The second principle, it's humility. Paul also writes, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something that to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's humility. So here's, this is a carburetor. Anyone know a carburetor? Anyone worked on carburetors before? A few, yeah, that's right. So this is a carburetor off of a, off of a string trimmer, a weed trimmer. So the string trimmer, it stopped working for me. And in order to fix the string trimmer, I had to replace the carburetor. They make these things virtually disposable right now. You could probably take it apart, maybe clean it up, but it's so small. And I think it would cost me more in time than it would actually to replace the carburetor. I think it was like $10. Okay, it's like, how do they do that? I don't know. Now with inflation, it's $150. Uh, it's, It's the same price as an egg. It's really what it boils down to. But it's a carburetor. And so the string trimmer quit working. I had to do something to fix the string trimmer. So I actually took the carburetor off, and I found a new carburetor, and I put the new carburetor on. I replaced the carburetor, and it fixed it. You know what's going to happen, though? That carburetor eventually will start getting gummed up. It's going to slow down, and it's going to quit working. I have a snowblower. It's been a good year to have a snowblower, provided your carburetor on your snowblower is working correctly, right? Well, for years, I've been struggling with this snowblower and the carburetor. I swapped out a different carburetor. I've tried different parts on it. Unfortunately, Ted Fusi's a mechanical genius, and he kept telling me different things in order to try. You can't do this. You can't do this. Finally, this year, I was getting the snowblower, and I got it running for that first snowfall. And as I'm running it, it's running horrid. 
I mean, it's running, but I'm actually literally trying to control the choke as I'm moving the snowblower. I took gorilla tape and I tried to tape that choke just in the right spot. You just got to find that sweet spot when, when, and then it would work for a while and then it would kind of knock off and kind of bog down. It would, if I went open, it would kill. If I went closed, it would kill. It's like I'm stuck. Ted is saying, have you, and I should have known, I'm an idiot for not knowing. He said, have you checked the needles? Well, no, but I had it running last year. I shouldn't have had to readjust the needles. And so there's these little needles. I got pictures on here. So in case you're not familiar with the carburetor, this is a blow-up diagram of the carburetor, okay? So if you ever take apart your carburetor, now you know how to put it back together, okay? This is virtually the same carburetor that's on my snowblower. And here's another version of it when it's put together, all right? It looks a little bit less threatening in a situation like this. But what you have here is you can see there's a number of different screws. So around the bottom, is this going to work? I'm going to try it. No. To pull it to the right? There it is. Wow, you guys are genius. Okay, see that, that's, that there knob? That's a little needle adjustment. This here, that's another needle adjustment. There's your idle adjustment thing up there. So all of these little screws adjust how that carburetor is going to be op- to operating. Here's what, what came to my mind. Ezekiel 36, 26. This might be my favorite verse in the, all of scriptures. I just absolutely love it. And what we find is God saying through the prophet Ezekiel, he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your old heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. That's the picture that I see with the carburetor. He takes that which is no longer functional. It's hard as stone. It's not working. I'm going to take that away and I'm going to give you a new heart. But he doesn't stop there. And this is where I think we get confused and we lose sight of really the beauty of what prayer can be for us. He says, I will put my spirit in you and I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful in my laws. In other words, yeah, I've given you a new heart. You know what I'm going to do? Just like you had to do with that snowblower and adjust those needles. By the way, Ted was spot on. I adjusted those needles. It's like, whoa, it's purring like a kitten. I, I snow blew the whole neighborhood. I was going up and down 11th Street, clearing out before the snow plows. I was so happy. He doesn't just give us a new heart, because he does. But he also then continues, hey, it's okay. You're not operating. And so he makes those adjustments in our life. And I'm convinced that it's when we can come to him in prayer. Lord, will you align my heart like yours? And we approach him in humility with a heart of thanks, remembering that he's given us this new heart. Oh, you betcha. I'll give you some adjustments. And some of those adjustments are like, oh, because we struggle so hard. I can do this on my own. I'm running, but barely. Just don't choke me off too much and I'll die off. Give me too much gas, I'll get burned out. Oh, there's such a beauty in saying, Lord, I'm spent. You know what I need. I come before you. Align my heart with yours. Now show me. What is it that I need to ask for? How is it that you need to relate with me? Uh, We see it rejoice in the Lord always. Remember what it is that he's done for you. And I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. This comes in prayer. I love it, okay? But in every situation, by prayer and petition, in other words, align your heart with me and you will find that I will give you a peace that you did not know existed. Present your request to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We're going to stop there. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up.
prayer is a, it's vital to any believer in Jesus Christ. Any follower of Christ, you have to pray. Is this like, okay, now twist my arm and I have to pray? No, this is like, oh, be drawn to the fact that God wants to have a connection with you, to have your heart aligned with his. And then when you invite him to do that, I am just convinced that he wants to lead you there in humility and thankfulness that you're going to find that relationship with you and the Lord is rich and it's good and he's going to give you those adjustments. If you're struggling with resentment with someone, invite the Lord to align your heart with his first and foremost. If you're struggling with, I don't know what to do about my finances, I'm really stressed about it, invite your heart to be aligned with his first and foremost. Remember all that he's done for you and with thankfulness and humility, present your request to him. He knows what it is that you need. Oh, it's good and it's sweet.